0: If I could dance, I would just break down when the when the beat drops. But uh, the Lord has not graced me with rhythm. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, in the spirit of founding pastor Peter Dusan, maybe I'll do it one day, and I'll just I'll just come out with if Peter, if you're watching this one day, we're we're roasting your lack of rhythm and all of the glory that is. Uh, well, good morning, welcome to the Springs. Uh, my name is Pastor Alberto. I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor and leading this church. Uh, with our team of elders, Chief Elder Jesus. And so really excited to gather here and to worship with you uh, this Sunday morning. When we gather, we don't just come here to uh, hear songs and listen to words or sit in for a TED Talk. Rather, we gather for worship. We worship the Lord in song. And as we worship the Lord, there's this relationship where we give praise to God. God visits us, and in that place, He begins to form us and make us more like Jesus. And when we open up the word of God, we look into the word as the Bible uh, was given one of the reasons for our transformation. And so when we look at the word of God, there's this supernatural thing that happens, this wonderful mystery that God begins to transform us, that the living word of God begins to get into our heart, soul, and mind, and, and something happens we experience the presence of God and become more like Him. And so that's what we're going to do right now, and that's what we're going to do every single Sunday, as long as I still lead here. We're going to look at the Word of God. And so uh, will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? And we're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James 5, 7 through 11. If you're joining us via live stream, thank you so much for worshiping with us. I too invite you to stand with us wherever you find yourself to honor the reading of God's Word. Verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Verse 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as we pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to gather into a room and worship you with family. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we sit here and stand here, uh, that you would come and reveal yourself to us. Lord, would you remove any lies, fears, distractions, thoughts that would keep us from seeing you and experiencing you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us see this word and as Pastor James says, put it into action. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So about three, two years ago, uh, my wife and I found ourselves um, at the happiest place in the world, uh, the DMV. And uh, we were there because uh, my wife has been uh, a, a, a Texas resident for about three years now. She's originally from North Carolina. And so we went to the DMV uh, to update her driver's license. And I thought to myself, well, while I'm here, I guess I'll finally update mine. And uh, there was this uh, wonderful thing that happened. Uh, uh, she was filling out all of her paperwork, and uh, she got her brand new license. But the receptionist said, in order to receive this license, you have to turn in your old one. And uh, Morgan was like, well, if I knew how to do that, I would just left it at home because uh, this is my North Carolina driver's license. It's so special. And so what happens is she turned in her North Carolina driver's license. They gave her a Texas license. And what happened in that moment is that my wife was no longer a resident or a citizen of North Carolina. Uh, she was now grafted into the great republic of Texas. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so let's praise God for that. And with that uh, came so many unique benefits, you know. No longer did she have to pay state income tax in North Carolina because we don't have one here. And uh, she forfeited her right to Bojangles and all delicious, uh, you know, uh, soul food. And now she barely likes Tex-Mex. And so with this exchange came a whole new life, a whole new set of privileges. And it has me thinking about this transaction that happens when we become followers of Jesus, Uh, The moment that you say yes to Jesus, the moment that you place your faith in Jesus, what you instantly do in that moment is that you renounce your citizenship in this earth and you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Uh, No longer do you abide to the ethics and the ways of this world. Rather, we're called to the original standard, a higher standard, the standard that actually gives life and makes us whole, and that is the way of the kingdom of God. And so when you become a follower of Jesus, you're no longer a citizen of this nation, a citizen of this world, or citizens of his kingdom. And as I was watching uh, the Olympics, uh, the the opening on on, on Friday, uh, one of my favorite things to do is see all these Olympians come in with their nations. Many people think it's boring. I think it's like uh, uh, another form of people watching. Like you see just these nations and the best athletes represented with them. And one thing that I found interesting is that every now and then there would be this obscure nation that I'd never heard of, somewhere in Micronesia, and it would have like a population of 30,000 with two athletes competing. And I'm thinking to myself, where do these athletes come from? And a lot of those athletes were actually from the United States. They would compete in college here. They would compete at a professional level. Yet when their citizenship called upon them, they belonged to that nation. And so though they live in the United States and compete at UT or in the NBA, they belong to the nation where they hold their citizenship. And it has me thinking about that idea. Though we live here, we don't belong here. Uh, And what that means is, is that you and I are exiles. The scriptures describe this experience as being exiles, in that if this isn't our home, and we are waiting for our final destination, This place that we find ourselves in, this in-between place, we are just pilgrims traveling through as exiles. And, And the reason why I open with this, the reason why I want to bring our attention to this, is because if we can remember this, if we understand this, that we are not permanent citizens here, that we're just passing through, that our final destination is the kingdom of God with him as he establishes his rule and reign here, if we remember that. It will have a tremendous impact on the way we understand struggles and hardships. It will set the right expectations for life when we experience suffering, when we experience grief, when we experience sadness. Because we're not letting the world's expectations regulate and sort of help process struggles and griefs and suffering. Rather, in the kingdom of God, they have redemptive purposes that the Lord uses to make us more like him. And this is what Pastor James is trying to show us and what he's sharing with his congregation. So let's look at verse 7 through 8. It says in verse 7, Therefore, brothers, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so where we find ourselves in this setting is that James is shepherding a group of people that is experiencing all sorts of afflictions and persecution. We've covered this a few times before, but we see this community of believers uh, that are living in Jerusalem uh, being uh, killed and martyred for their faith. We see them uh, being oppressed by the rich and wealthy. Uh, their quality of life is so low simply because they identify with Christ. And James is trying to encourage this people that the Lord has entrusted him to shepherd, and, and, and he's saying uh, that, 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 that be patient Until the coming of the Lord, because there was this temptation to abandon the faith. There was this temptation to let go of everything that you've committed to the Lord. There was this temptation to run away. And James is trying to stir up hope in their heart and reminding them that that who they're living for and, 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 and what they're doing is not done in vain. That, that, that in fact, Jesus was real, that he lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead. And James looks out into the world, and though he's afflicted, and though he's experiencing great suffering and trouble, he is reminded that Jesus is who he said he is. That, that Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that James and Jesus had a one-on-one. Uh, That that Jesus actually rose from the dead, met with the disciples, met with James, and they conversed. They talked about life. And and, and in that moment, there's this, uh, whatever that conversation looked like, imagine if you're standing with the resurrected Jesus. I mean, faith and belief begin to fill your heart. A sort of faith and belief and confidence in the Lord that overshadows all of the suffering and afflictions and hardships that we might experience. And so James, when he says this, it's not this sort of casual, cliche thing like, you're struggling and you've had a bad day and work's going really rough. Have joy in the Lord. Rather, when James says this, it's because he knows the Lord. He's seen the Lord. He's experienced the Lord. He's seen the resurrected Christ. So he's not saying the obvious Christian thing to do. Rather, he's speaking from a place of experience that's worked for him. And so he begins to give us sort of uh, three different examples of patience. And the first one is about a farmer. Uh, And and he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. And so um, I want to draw your attention to that word precious uh, and ask the question, why is this fruit precious? James could have said it was just normal fruit, see how the farmer waits for the crops, but he's trying to uh, draw our attention to really uh, what the fruit represents in a farmer's life. You see, in this ancient agrarian society, fruits and crops and farming was the source of life. It was the source of well-being. How much fruit and how much crops you had really determined the quality of life you would experience in that year. If you had an abundance of fruits, if you had an abundance of crops, guess what? You're eating. We're feasting. And if there's no fruit and there's no crops, there's no money, and the quality of life would go down because there was no resources to keep the lights on, to eat and feed the family. And so this fruit was precious because it was connected to life. Uh, These crops, these fruits determined whether there would be uh, a sense of well-being. And here's how precious it is. It was so precious that in the Old Testament, we see people bowing down to idols that promised them a good harvest. We see in the Old Testament, the people of God repeatedly bowing down, worshiping these false gods that promised, Hey, if you worship me, if you uh, kill animals for me, if you bring up an offering, I will promise you in return, rain a good harvest, a good return. And and so we see Baal, he represents this sort of storm God, the the bringer of rain. And in Judges, this is sort of uh, the the, the theme of the book is that there's a generation, a group of people who knew not the Lord, so they would bow down to other idols for a sense of well-being in life. And so when they weren't seeing God provide for them on their timeline, they would go bow down to a false idol and say, well, you bring us rain because we need food. They would bow down and erect what was called the Astaroth poles, and they would uh, offer idol worship to this goddess of fertility because children were gold, a sense of livelihood. You would put them to work and
1: maintain the
0: land. And we see something here. There will always be a temptation to bow down to sin when you feel lifeless. There will always be this temptation to give yourself to a way out that isn't God's way when you feel like the quality of your life is low, when you feel like you are drowning, when you feel like you are suffocating, when you feel like your well-being and your most basic needs aren't being met, when you feel like the Lord isn't meeting those for you, you will go bow down to something or someone else that you think will satisfy you. That will give you the essential things in life. And that's why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 5.24, as he's rebuking the people of God, he says, They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season. The autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. And he's calling out a specific group of people. Who are living in, in such a faithless way. Where they don't trust God to meet their basic uh, needs. Where they don't trust God to be their refuge. And be their strength and their source of joy. And they give themselves over to other things that they think will momentarily satisfy them. And if you feel this temptation. If you've given in to this temptation where you feel like you're experiencing hardship and you're struggling and you're suffering and you're stressed, and so you're seeking a way out, whether it be through your uh, internet activity, whether it be through the relationships you carry that the Lord has called you to put down, whether it's through uh, taking matters into your own hand and using your money and your resources to fulfill you instead of trusting the Lord with it. If you feel this temptation, there's hope for you. James invites you to see and behold the goodness of God. And where do we see it? For this people, they see it in the rain. He says, see the early and the late rains. Now, what does this mean? Uh, Some translations say autumn and the spring rain. So I am not a farmer. I'm not a rancher. I like the idea of it. That's why I wear boots. Uh, Something about like being in the wilderness is satisfying to me. I won't do it but I like the idea of it. Uh, And and so here's what I know from the internet, uh, that autumn was the time for planting. And I'm I'm sure uh, Zach can confirm this for me because he's from West Texas. And that spring was the time for harvesting. So in the autumn, you you planted. In the spring, you harvested. And in the in-between seasons, you you maintained the land. You you pulled weeds. you, You fended off the animals and the birds that would try to get the crop. So what's the significance of this? Well, uh, one commentator says that the rain signified God's mercy and faithfulness in taking care of his people. That that when the rain came, uh, it was this very real reminder that God is for us, that God is good, that God is taking care of us because he knows that we need rain for this season of planting and season of harvesting. And so when this ancient people would look out into the world and they would see rain, hope would be stirred up in their heart and it would be this very real physical reminder that God is good, that God is faithful. And he said all the farmer could do was wait for the rains to arrive. And that's sort of the invitation that Jesus calls us into, is that there's going to be parts of our discipleship to Jesus, our relationship in God, where it's going to be very active. Like God's going to call you to do things. God's going to call you to pray things. And then there's going to be parts where you're just waiting. And the temptation is to believe that that waiting is God's inactivity in our lives. Rather, it's in that place where God is producing something. Setting something up uh, for a harvest to be received in our life that is for our good and his worship. So, like the ancient farmer, we have no control over the events that will take place in this world. So the events that were out of control for this farmer were weather disasters and crop failures. And, and you and I get this. We're, we're starting to understand this. We see uh, coming out of 2020 and into 2021, we know we have no control over this world. One day, uh, this could be the policy. The next day, this could be uh, the, the world is shutting down again. We see that, that we are not as in control as we think we are. And, and here's what I want to remind you of, is that being out of control is not a reason to retreat into hopelessness. Right. Being out of control is not a reason to retreat into despair and, 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 and feeling uh, the weight of, of helplessness. Rather, being out of control in the kingdom of God is another pathway for intimacy with Jesus. Being out of control, when everything is out of your control, praise God, the Lord has granted you another opportunity for intimacy with him. Why? Because things that are out of our control remind our hearts that there is a God who runs every single atom in this universe under his control. And this God is good. This God is loving. This God is kind, and he delights in your well-being. And what is out of my control rests under the control of a sovereign God who loves you and cares for you. And so one of the invitations of being a follower of Jesus is having a a, a relationship with him, history with God, experiencing seasons with God. The type of seasons and the type of history that teach your heart to believe that his ways are better. That when you are experiencing a season of drought, rain will come. Uh, That when you are feeling hopeless, hope is on its way. Uh, That when you feel like there's no way out, God is coming to your rescue and he's a strong refuge. And the invitation to be a follower of Jesus is to build a history with God that teaches you to believe that he is truly good that he is truly great, that, 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 he, that, that rain will come, provision will come, joy will come, hope will come. We can submit to his process. His process is good. His mercy, his faithfulness can move our heart to trust. So where do we place our trust? In his goodness. So when we experience hardship or distress or suffering or struggling or a bad day or a bad week, There's this temptation to be impatient, to not wait on the Lord, and go find rescue by bowing down to something or someone else. But there's another thing that we're tempted to do, one that we're all too familiar with, and James calls this experience grumbling. Let's look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So to remind you of this context, the people of God are being oppressed. The oppressor is the, uh, the, the rich, affluent people who are using their means to keep the, the, the people of God, the early Christians, um, on the outskirts of society, withholding from them shelter, goods, food. And so there was this temptation to sort of rise up and riot. To, to, to say, you know what, we're going to take matters into our own hands and, and, and we're going to seek our own form of justice. And, and, and what is the temptation here is that they would usurp God's role as an avenger. Is that they would take this place of being an avenger by taking matters into their own hands. Instead of submitting themselves to the Lord and pursuing his vision for love, kindness, and justice. And and the temptation they would give themselves over to is to grumble. And and we think about grumbling, and it seems like it's no big deal. We like to complain, and we like to grumble. Sometimes uh, we do it jokingly. Sometimes we, we do it seriously, like, what's for dinner? Oh... Pasta again, like pasta. By the way, my wife cooks mean pasta and I'm not calling her out. Uh, she is a fantastic cook. But some of you guys, when you cook pasta, I'm just kidding. Uh, I've never had your pasta, by the way, so calm down. Um, we, we grumble. Uh, we complain. Our boss asks us to do something and, and we don't like it. And, and here's what I want to call your attention to is that in the kingdom of God, grumbling is no small sin. You see, when you grumble, what you're essentially saying is that if I had the power, I would unseat you from the throne and place myself there. I love, I love how one pastor said this, uh, that, 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 the, that when we see kids grumble against their parents, what they're essentially saying is that if I was strong enough, you would be going to bed, not me. I would put you down and I would stay up. Uh, When we grumble, what we're saying is is that we're declaring that if we had all the power and all the authority and we had it our way, it would go down the way we want it to. And the reason why you'll never find a parent grumbling against their little one is because they have the power and authority to put them down. Tell them to go to bed. Stay in your room. Don't talk to me. Uh, My son's not there yet, but uh, uh, I feel like... Grumbling against him, like, come on, man. (laughs) Um, But uh, he's great, and I love him. Grumbling is no small sin, because what we're essentially saying is that if I had the power and I had the authority, it would go down my way. Not your way, not God's way, my way. And these people are grumbling, because what they're saying is that if we had the power and we had the authority, we would sort of uh, wipe out all of the people that are oppressing us. Uh, And instead of abiding to God's vision of loving them and serving them and seeing the gospel renew the most broken parts of their heart, we're just going to wipe them away and want nothing to do with them. And we see these people grumbling. And and I love what John Bloom, um, uh, a a writer, says. uh, Grumbling complaints, directly or indirectly, declare that God is not sufficiently good, faithful, loving, wise, powerful, or competent. Otherwise, he would treat us better or run the universe more effectively. Faithless complaining is sinful because it accuses God of doing wrong. When we grumble against the Lord, we're, we're, we're casting an accusation against him like, Lord, why would you see fit that my life would turn out this way? Lord, why would you place me here? Lord, why do I not have enough? Lord, why uh, is my life falling apart? And we're making an accusation against God saying that he does not know what's best for me. And we're accusing God of not being wise, not being powerful, not being good, not being faithful. Because if we had it our way, the story would play out completely different. Faithless complaining is sinful because it accuses God of doing wrong. And what the scriptures remind us time and time again is that God is good, that, that, that God is loving, uh, that, that though uh, we, we may suffer and be afflicted, he is faithful, he is compassionate, he is merciful, working all things out for our good. He gives and he takes away, but he is still worthy of our praise, not because he is this master in control and, and, and commanding our respect, but because he's a loving father who sees the beginning from the end and is molding every single second of your life to craft faithfulness and goodness in your life for his glory and praise. And so faithful complaining uh, does not impugn God with wrong. That, that complaining isn't a sin, faithless complaining is a sin, that there's a way to, to, to practice grieving and to, and to practice groaning and confessing our heart that's still done with faith. And James is about to give us two examples of that. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's, he, he's directing uh, this sort of attribute of being patient and suffering well with the prophets, because when we consider the prophets, and you can read about them in Hebrews 11, they suffered. Uh, they were killed. Uh, they were treated terribly, not because they were doing something wrong, but because they were speaking about the Lord, and, and, and yet, what uh James is reminding us is that their commitment to Jesus, their commitment to serving the lord wasn 't one done in vain rather uh it, it was it was is a good call that God had over their life, and that we can learn a lot about their commitment to the Lord and how they endured well and, and hes and He points out one specific character and that 's job uh, now many uh, uh Scholars and, and, and people who sort of have studied this text have said, why would he include Job? Job is, uh, when we look at the life of Job, uh, is he really the best example of suffering well? Uh, some say that he isn't the best example because when we consider his life, he, 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 he challenged God's justice. Like, God, why, why, why is this happening to me? Uh, uh, he complained bitterly against the Lord and he questioned God often. So what exactly made Job commendable? What made his life worthy of being an example of steadfast commitment to the Lord is that he never denounced God in any of it. Uh, That he never denounced his faith in the Lord. That he remained faithful to the end. So, So what we see here is that you can be struggling, you can be having a really bad day, a really bad week, a really bad season, and yet there's a way to process your heart to the Lord that's still done in faith. That the Lord isn't condemning you complaining. Complain in the faith. The Lord isn't condemning you for questioning and for challenging him. But he, what he wants from us is, it to be, is for this to be done in faith. In that we're not denouncing God. Uh, in that we're not uh, um, turning away from him. But we're remaining faithful. And I love this because it really puts on display how deeply the Lord cares about our humanity and our emotions. Is that he it welcomes our doubts. He welcomes these parts of our heart that feel enraged and, are, and feel like complaining and challenging the Lord. He welcomes those things. And and what's so amazing is that as we continue to commit our lives to the Lord and say, I will remain steadfast, I will remain committed to you, we see him making sense of our life. We see him molding and reusing our struggles and hardships into these beautiful harvests for righteousness and growth. If we remain faithful and commit to him. Job never denounces faith. He remained faithful to the very end. So faithful, so trusting of the Lord that his heart was moved to say one incredible thing about the Lord. Uh, that, that before we bring it up on the screen, I want you to see it for yourself. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Job chapter 42 two. if you don't have a bible use your bible app if you don't have the bible app type this verse into google and the reason why i'm doing this is because i felt the lord impress on my heart that there's people in this room that need to hold this right. that need to see this promise of the lord for themselves uh, that need to really set their eyes on this and see how incredible the Lord is in the midst of all our afflictions and persecution and trials and hardships, in the midst of the places of life where we feel hard-pressed and like nothing makes sense and we're suffocating and suppressed, there is one thing uh, that I feel like the Lord wants to remind our hearts this morning. And if you're there, you're probably seeing it. And I want to read it together. Let's look at Job 42 Two. I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That, that, that my prayer and that my heart for this church is that we would believe this, is that when we're experiencing some of the worst days of our life, that when our kids are moving us to uh, this incredible anger, that if we saw a video recording of it, people would doubt your salvation, uh, that if people would see the way that you manage your relationships, or people would see... Uh, how much pain and, and struggle you're going through, and it feels like there's no way out, and you want to turn to something or someone else, Job reminds us, I know you can do all things. That God can do all things. That as um, Abraham would say, that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. That when we're experiencing some doubt and we're wanting to denounce and turn away from the faith when we want to give in to our own way of living and we're grieved and we're sad, God can do all things. God can meet you where you are and completely turn your life around. God can transform you from the inside out and bring reconciliation to your marriage. Bring patience to your parenting. uh, Bring a newfound love and hope in your relationships. Bring strength to you when you feel weak. God can do all things. Do you believe this, church? Do you believe that God can do all things? Does your life reflect that? Who do you turn to? What do you do when you don't believe God can do all things? You find yourself submitting to lesser pleasures and desires and taking control of your own life, or does your life boldly declare that my God can do all things? Job was a model of patient faithfulness to God. Here's what Grant Osborne says, Job's lesson means for us, that God is full of compassion, full of mercy. His mercy is exercised on our behalf, not just in spite of our suffering, but because of it. He turns a painful experience into a harvest of righteousness. And as we patiently endure, we become, as James 1, 2 through 4 says, mature and complete, lacking nothing. And he transforms and turns things around his merciful hand becomes more and more evident. As we experience the Lord, as we remain faithful to him, maybe faithful to him while complaining, faithful to him while rejoicing, we learn to believe as we see that God can truly do all things. And why can we say that God can do all things? We can say this because when when we struggle, when we suffer, When we we, we grumble and we try to create a life of comfort for ourselves. That looks like we we, we run away, we reject God, we, we turn away from him, we do things on our own. But when Jesus struggles, when Jesus suffers, Jesus doesn't grumble. Jesus doesn't complain. Jesus doesn't doubt the will of God over his life. Jesus doesn't run away when when all of the opposing forces come to crucify him. Jesus waits. Jesus stays. Jesus endures patiently, and he receives the cross. Why? Because Jesus knows that the safest place to be is not running away from adversity, but being in God's hands. And he shows us this. He shows us that when we struggle, when we suffer... When we feel afflicted, the safest, most life-giving place for us to be in is not grumbling, is not running away, is not denouncing the faith, but being with God. And at the cross, we see compassion and mercy collide with sin and suffering and we see hardships are turned into a harvest of righteousness as the resurrected Lord conquers all of the sin all of the doubt all of the shame all of the guilt that you and I bear so that that can remove and we can receive his life and this is the good news of the kingdom of God This is is the good news of being a citizen in his kingdom, not a citizen in this world. Because when you are a citizen of this world, the world will tell you that the reason you're suffering and the reason you're afflicted is because you did something wrong. And hear me, some of you are suffering and you are afflicted because sin has consequences. And there's no way around that. And the Lord is inviting you to repent. Repent. The Lord is inviting you to find life in him. And yet even in that place, as we abide and are citizens of his kingdom, the Lord can use even our sinful experiences, our sinful suffering or our righteous suffering for his good and his purposes. And he can use the most broken parts of our life to craft godliness in us to craft hope and a life and a future that isn't dependent on how well you and I do but is dependent solely on who he is and his love for you and his commitment to your well-being this is good news church that when you are afflicted that when you are hard-pressed that this week tomorrow Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you will have a bad day. You will have an outburst of anger. You will feel like the world is against you. You You will be in your car and you will have these thoughts that will say, is it even worth it carrying on? Is it even worth it pressing through? It would just be so easy if all of this ended or Jesus came back today. And when you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, that moment right there is not a moment of hopelessness. It's a moment that the Lord is using to craft greater intimacy with him that the Lord is familiar with. Because when Jesus was on the cross and experiencing all the weight of death and sin and hardship, he cried out, Lord, why have you forsaken me? So that God could turn his face towards you when you are experiencing a crucifixion moment in your life. And you can have this confidence that he will turn his face towards you and he will never leave you. This is the good news of the kingdom of God is that when you're a citizen in his kingdom, suffering and hardships and afflictions take on an entirely different role for your life. They're not an indication of how good or bad you are. Rather, the Lord will use them to form a life inside of you that you could not do on your own. And we can declare it the way the psalmist says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I want to close with Romans eight twenty six 26-28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Are you weak? Are you troubled? Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you giving in to temptation? The Lord has given you His Spirit that desires and enjoys helping you. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, if you love God, if you're submitting your life to his lordship and his rule and reign over you, know this that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Three things I want to show you as we come to a close. The Spirit is praying for you more deeply than we are praying for ourselves. You're groaning. The Spirit is groaning with you. All right. Being with you, abiding with you, connecting you to the heart of God. He is interceding for you and he knows the mind of God. And lastly, the reason your life is happening the way it is happening on a really good day or a really bad day is because God is causing everything to work for the good of those who love him. This is all done in love. How do I know this? Because those who love God can love God because he first loved you. And so God's work in your life is from love for love. Let's pray before we transition into communion. Lord, we praise you. We worship you for being full of mercy and full of compassion. Lord, thank you that the experiences that we go through in life, whether they're really great or or really bad, um, are all opportunities for us to see your hand at work as you're making us more like you. As you are crafting a future and a purpose and a life for us that we couldn't do on our own. And so, Lord, I want to invite you humbly to come fill our hearts with your love and your presence afresh. Holy Spirit, would you help us when we feel weak, when we feel like grumbling? when we feel like giving ourselves to faithless complaints, would you help and come stir faith in our hearts? When we feel impatient and we don't feel like waiting on you, and we want to take matters into our own hands, and we want to look for solutions and create a future of comfort and pleasure for ourselves that is void of you, would you slow us down and remind us that waiting on you is not time wasted? Because we gain more and more you so Lord I praise you for showing us through the life of Christ that the best place we can be in is in your hands is with you in adversity or through miracles the safest place for us to be in is waiting with you Lord I pray that you would move our hearts to believe this and trust you more and more this week In Jesus' name.